Okay, so welcome back to Kielos Chavemitz Vasemis on Parshas Vayetze. One of my favorite pieces in the Svasemis. Partly because of the question. Okay, he starts off with a medrash. The medrash says it applies a pasuk from Mishle to Yaakov Avinu's journey, right, to Choron, to the house of Lovon. It says, Oz telech labetach. Okay, Oz, and pay attention to that word Oz, it's going to be important. It's spelled Aleph Zayim. Tarutz veloti kashel. You will run and you won't fall. He says, Debeemes barach Yaakov ba'avur esav. Okay, we have different words in Hebrew for going from one place to the other. Now, the word which is used, should be used, in the context of the story that we've seen so far last week, was that Esau wanted to kill Yaakov, and therefore he had to get away. Okay, it was not something he wanted to do. He knew that Yitzhak Avin was told, you can't leave Eretz Yisrael. Now Yaakov is being told to leave Eretz Yisrael. He has to leave the house of Yitzhak and Rivka, go to the house of Lavan, which when you look in the Midrashim was a really, really, really bad place in many, many ways, right? Spiritually, to the extent, last year we learned the Shem Shmuel, who said, why was it Esav didn't pursue him there? Because Esav felt that he would be spiritually destroyed in Lovin's house. He didn't have to worry about it. Yaakov would not be the same Yaakov once he was there. Um, and last week's parsha, they used a different word. When Rachel told Yaakov to go, so she told him, she said, right, Vatabni Shmabakoli, my son, listen to my voice. Run away to my brother, Lavan, in Choram. She used the word livroach, which means to escape, to run away. That is the proper verb to use in such a situation where you have someone who wants to kill you, and he's someone with experience. Chazal said he had already killed people at this point. So Yaakov ran. The Novi in Hosea uses that word also. Right? It describes Yaakov's flight. And it says that he, um, he ran. Right? It says, I'm sorry. Vayivrach Yaakov's de Aram. Yaakov ran off to the fields of Aram. But here in our Pasha, they use Vayetze Yaakov mi Be'er Sheva Ve'elcharon as a prosaic little description, as if he went over the river and through the woods to Uncle Lovan's house. He left Beersheba and he went to Choram. Explains the Svasimus. Dibe'emes barach Yaakov ba'avoreso. It's true. We're not changing the facts. The reason Yaakov ran away was because of Esau. And he did run. But now he says, let's zoom out and let's look from the end to the front. This journey that Yaakov Avinu took which was an escape from Esau, running someplace he didn't want to go, with what we know about that trip, was it a good trip or a bad trip? In terms of Yaakov Avinu, that turned out to be an excellent trip, meaning, Yaakov Avinu completed himself specifically because of that trip. In that trip, first of all, he met the women he was supposed to marry. He had the children who became the Shvatim, the nucleus of Am Yisrael forever, and he perfected his midos by striving with Lovon and his trickery and became the person he was supposed to become. So we're able to see that trip, and that was a very, very successful trip for Yaakov. 
It was something that really made him who he was. Now, it's easy to see these things at the end, but here we're talking about Yaakov at the stage of Vayetze. What happened? How did the transition go from Vayivrach to Vayetze? From running away to leaving Beersheva, walking towards Choram. So he says the secret is, in what Chazal said, that there was a stage in between. Okay? You can look in Rashi, he does the calculations of the years, and we have these years missing, these 12 years missing, right? that Yaakov, where was he during that time? And Rashi brings down from Chazal, Shehitmin atzmo v'beis medrash shem He buried himself in the base medrash of Shem. It's a very strange language to use for learning in yeshiva, to bury yourself. The word hatamona in Hilchah Shabbos involves like wrapping up your pot with blankets and all the halachic you know, complications with that so that it's buried under some coverings. What does that mean that he buried himself? So he says like this. He says that that was what changed things. That Avshik Kosov Le'el, right? Even though it wrote in the Torah that it was Vayivrach, Okay, so this is an expression right, used in the Zohar Kodesh for the concept of tshuva. He says the world of tshuva is the hidden world, the alma de iskasya, the world that's covered up. And that is the world that Yaakov Avinu entered in that base medrash. That was when he delved deep and he went deep below the surface. He came in contact with that world. Let's try to figure out what this is talking about. The idea of tshuva is not simply, oops, Hashem, I did something wrong. Please forgive me. Please don't punish me. I'm sorry. The idea of tshuva is connecting everything to its source, is recognizing what the source of everything is and connecting everything and reconnecting everything that perhaps was separated to its true source. Yaakov Avinu saw that he was forced and the right thing to do was to run away from his parents' home to the house of Lavan. The facts on the ground required that. A person has to save their life. His mother was very wise and she told him how he could save his life, to go to Lavan's house. Yitzchak also told him go there and find the shidduch there. So that was where he had to go. But Yaakov learned when he took the time to stop there and said, wait, does Esau run the world? Has Esau wrested control from HaKadosh Baruch Hu and what's supposed to happen in the world and therefore he's making me run away from where I want to be to a place that I don't want to be? That's not true. Hashem is behind everything that's there. So therefore, if the circumstances are making me go to this place, that's where I'm supposed to go. And therefore, I can shift from Vayivrach, from running away from Esau, to Vayetze. I'm going toward my destiny. I am leaving Beersheva because that is what Hashem wants me to do. And I'm going to Choron. So... This illustrates a principle that's so important for everything in our life. In our lives, we end up in so many situations that we didn't want. And we have to realize that if those are the situations we had to be in, 
So that's really a form of shlichus. Hashem is sending us there. And we're supposed to embrace it. We're supposed to keep our eyes open to see what we can and should be doing there. And we have the Torah to guide us, to tell us what you should do in each situation you're in. And you have to switch those things from Vayivrach to Vayetze. I'll give you an example from uh, Jewish history uh, pre-war, just pre-war. Right? In the city of Tells, so there was uh, a shopkeeper who decided that he would keep his shop open on Shabbos. He was a communist, but even the communists in town had not done something like that until then. So people tried to convince him to close the store. He refused. Eventually, they arranged a protest outside the store on Shabbos. And people were protesting, and he was standing there. And then a contingent from the Tel's yeshiva came to join the protest. When they arrived, he yelled an insult that was common to yell at yeshiva bachram in those days. He called them in Yiddish bankvetchers. A bankvetcher literally means a bench presser. That's not like bench pressing in the gym. That means uh, someone who simply warms the bench he sits on and does nothing else useful in life. So here history is a little bit fuzzy. It does seem clear that somebody slapped him, and it does seem to be that it was somebody from the Tell's contingent. He lodged the complaint with the police. The police came to the yeshiva. The yeshiva at the time was run by three brothers, Rav Avram Yitzchok, Rav Zalman, and Rav Elyameir Bloch. Rav Elyameir told the police, I did it. He took it upon himself. They brought him in for questioning. They released him. But meanwhile, this communist Jew had a picture of who was responsible, and he let it be known that he was going to get revenge. Soon afterwards, he received a position of power in the local politics somehow, and the family got worried that he really could do something to rebellion mayor. So they had a meeting, and they said, the yeshiva needs somebody to raise money in America anyway. Why don't you travel to America, raise money for the yeshiva, and we'll let you know when things cool down and you can come back. So he went to America together with his brother-in-law, Muttel Katz, and they started fundraising. Not long after that, the Nazis entered Tells and destroyed everything. So he and his brother-in-law gathered together other people who had learned in Tells and survived, and they rebuilt the yeshiva in Ohio. That was what he did. So he said, if you would ask me, how did you get to America? I could say... There was this communist who was threatening me. My life was in danger. I ran away. But then I look at a story in Tanakh, and I see that's not the way I'm supposed to say it. Because we find the story of David and Yonason and Shaul. Okay, the famous meeting, Yonason and David met and discussed David's fate. David told him, your father wants to kill me. Yonason had a hard time believing his father, Shaul Amelech, wanted to kill David. He said, let me check and see if that's actually true. It was the famous Rosh Chodesh Suda. And he went and he sat there and he praised David HaMelech and Shaul nearly killed him for defending David. So he went out to meet David in the place that they had agreed to meet and he told him, he said, Lech ki Hashem. Go because Hashem is sending you. So Rebel Yomer Bloch said, I looked at that post and I said, wait, why is he talking that? Why didn't he say, go, my father wants to kill you? Go because you're in danger if you stay. Run to save your life. He says, because the way Jonas and David looked at the world wasn't the same way we would look at it initially. What they felt is, if it is indeed true that Shaul wants to kill David, 
and therefore David has to leave Eretz Yisrael and go elsewhere, it's not Shaul who's controlling the situation, it's Hashem who's sending him. It's a shlichus. He says, Leich Hashem. Go because Hashem is sending you. That's the way a person turns a vayivrach into a vayetze. Okay? And he says, this is done if a person really remembers what's behind it. He said that's actually the symbolism of the name of the city that he left. The Er Sheva. He says, if you'll notice, the Pasuk that the Medrash brought from Mishle, I said the word Oz is important. Oz telech lebetach. Oz is Aleph and Zion. Zion represents the seven days of creation. What goes on in this world? Aleph represents that which is beyond it. That which is the source of it all. Be'er Sheva, there's a source for everything that happens in the seven days of the week. And that source is HaKadosh Baruch And if a person can remember that and connect to that, so then, right, he said, Then he went to Choron. He was going towards his destiny. He was going to the destination that Hashem wanted him to go to. He wasn't just running away. So this is there in, in macro changes in our lives that happen like that, but it's in micro changes also, right? It can be anything from missing a bus, right, to having to change jobs or to move apartments or all these things. If that is the right decision to make, so we shouldn't waste our energy on blaming the situation and we shouldn't feel victimized that we're running away from the situation. We should say, okay, HaKadosh Baruch is in charge of all situations. He's sending me someplace. Let's see what, where, and how I have to do. Okay, it's interesting. Vayetze often comes out before, during, after the big uh, conference of Chabad Shluchim that they always have in America, which is fantastically impressive when they do the roll call, what's called. And they call, you know, alphabetically, oh, the Shliach from Azerbaijan stand up, you know, and they're getting down to Zimbabwe or whatever's there in the, in the Z's. And these thousands of people are in all different places. And uh, people look at that with admiration, and part of the admiration is, they say, isn't that great that the very concept of a shliach, when you meet them, they have extreme confidence that they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do in life, right? Especially when the Rebbe was choosing their destinations, right? I don't know exactly how it works now. I always imagine a young Chabad couple waiting for their assignment, you know, and the wife asks her husband, what do we get? Right? Hawaii? He said, no, Siberia. Right? <laughs> I don't know how it particularly goes, but in those days, the Rebbe would pick your destination. And that was it. You say, okay, that is exactly where I'm supposed to be. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. Right? There's a cool story. Revolba, actually, was not a Lubavitcher. One said he was sitting next to a Chabad, a Chabad Chassid on the plane, and he asked him where he was going, and he said he's going to Spain. And he said, you know, to some city in Spain. He said, why? He says... The Rebbe told me I should go there. He didn't give me any further details, so I assume it will become apparent as things go on. Revolba admired that in terms of the idea of, of being a soldier and a shliach and understanding these things. Right? There's one of my favorite stories that I saw. It was, uh, again, a, a fellow was sent on his shlichus. He was sent to a certain island, like some kind of Caribbean island or something. Doesn't sound bad. But he wasn't given any details. So he gets there. So what you do is you try and find out, are there any Jews here? Nothing. He couldn't find any Jews. So he said, all right, what am I supposed to do? All I can do is be me. So he's like trudging around this island, all the streets and alleyways, 
looking like a Lubavitcher, you know, with his chitas in one hand and his, you know, thing in the other hand, and his smushed in hat on his head, and he's going around, and suddenly this woman yells out from a balcony, like she says, you came, he sent you. She came down, and she told him the story. She says, my husband and I were the last Jews on this island. When my husband passed away, so the local priest started to visit me a lot. And he was telling me, you know, you're all alone. And there's no more of your community here. Join us and we'll take care of you. We'll take care of you for the rest of your life. Right? Otherwise, you have nobody. And she says, over time, he was starting to wear me down. So I told Hashem, I said, if you want me to remain Jewish, send me a Jew that I can identify as a Jew. That was, that was his thing. So we have no idea often of when or how or what we're accomplishing with our shlichus. Sometimes we'll get to see the results. Sometimes we don't, right? You missed your plane. You're staying in the airport for another eight hours. Again, the airline didn't do it to you. The airplane didn't do it to you. HaKadosh Baruch was behind that. That doesn't mean you have to harass people in the airport saying, uh, God made me sit in the airport for eight hours. That means I must be, have to be makar of you. So let's sit down and get it done quickly. Right? You don't know. But by being you, sometimes, right, mystically, there are all these stories with the Baal Shem Tov that a bracha had to be said in a certain place for a certain tikkun. Right? And sometimes doing something of Kedusha in one place, you sat on that bench in the airport and... A Jew is going to sit on that bench at some time, and the Torah that you learned and the tefillah that you sat on that bench is going to influence their soul. It's, it can do something. So there are many of these things that are there. The key is that a person has to accept the situation. Right? It doesn't mean to be passive. It means to react in the right way to the situation and then to feel that that's going to take you to your destiny. And the main way to do it is simply by being yourself. Right? Hashem sends you in the pathway of so many different people and so many different situations. And you have to look to the Torah and that guides you in what you're, in what you're doing and how you're doing it. I heard this from Rav Chanach Teller. Right? He's a famous writer, famous storyteller, very friendly person. He, he told me he flies a lot. He says uh, he always feels bad if he gets seated next to a person who's from he feels that's kind of a waste. It's nice to meet another from person, but he says it's just such a great opportunity for Jews from different walks of life to get to know each other as people when you're locked up in this big tin can for 12, 13 hours. And he said one time he was, he was seated next to a really tough Israeli couple. They looked like, you know, kibbutznikim from the old days. And he tried to start conversation, tried to warm them up a little bit, nothing stony reception. But a few hours behind him was Rebaran Chodesh, the Mashgiach in the Mir Yeshiva then. And when it got to be the time for halachic daytime, so he kind of took out his coat and his hat from the overhead, and he very slowly, not loud in a way to disturb people, but distinctly said, Moida ani lefanecha, So this couple turned to Chanoch Teller and they said, what's he doing? So explain them a little bit about the idea of moda'ani, of thanking Hashem when you wake up. Then he took off his hat and his coat, he went to the back of the plane, he came back, he put it on again. He started saying slowly, Baruch Hashem, asher adam They said, what's he doing now? He says, well, this may sound a little strange to you, but there's actually a blessing that we say after going to the bathroom. 
And then the conversation started, and they were interested. Okay, the story doesn't end, and now they're Belzer Hasidim. I don't know exactly what happened to them, but they, the wall came down. But he said, it wasn't me. It was Rabban Chadash simply being himself on a plane, right, that opened the interest in the hearts of these people. So that's the main thing that a person has to do. That's the idea of looking at these journeys that we have. And that's the way Hashem spreads Torah in the world. Many times, big people had to take journeys that they didn't want. How did Rav Dessler get to England? It wasn't because he was a big soccer fan or anything. He was in Kelm. He was from the family of the altar of Kelm. He loved Kelm. There's a beautiful letter in Michtav Melio that he writes to his daughter before she left Kelm to remember every detail of Kelm and what's there. But his father's business had gone under, and he needed to help his father get money. So he did so by going to England. When he was in England, so aside from the institutions he built in England, eventually the Gateshead Women's Seminary, the Gateshead Kolo, he had private students. Right? Some of the most famous, there was the Sassoon family in, uh, in London, and uh, he tutored the two children of uh, Mr. David Sassoon, uh, Suleiman and Farcha. And, uh, and he, he tutored them with Suleiman. He learned with him throughout the time he went through school all the way till he earned his PhD. And then he started learning with others. Now, this was fascinating because these were Jewish kids from Orthodox homes, but there was very little Jewish schooling there. So they were going to regular schools. And he told them to ask questions that come up in that process. And the way he addressed those questions created a lot of the very fascinating Torah that we find in the compilation of his teachings in Michtav Meliyahu. That wouldn't have been there otherwise. So here we had a financial situation, which was a difficult situation, that made him go to a place. And when you see the descriptions of the shul that he had, especially in the beginning in the East End of London, like these people were really not interested in his Torah from Kelm at all. Right? That was part of why he found these private students, not just in order to earn more income, but also to have somebody who was listening and interested in the Torah he was able to teach. So we all have to realize that our life is a constant s- series of shlichas that happens, where we get sent from one place to the other. And sometimes we may not see it. There was a famous story, um, one of the cities in Texas, I don't remember if it was Dallas or Houston, or perhaps another, the, the rabbi told this story. He said that he, um, he was sitting in his office. He had recently started a shul there. He gets a call from a gentleman. His name, I think, was Lenny or something. And he said, Rabbi, is it possible to set up a meeting with you? He says, yes, I, I do have meetings. Um, can I ask you what it's about? He said, yes, I'd like to give a large donation to your synagogue. He says, schedule's open. <laughs> right now, midnight, whatever's good for you. The guy comes, and he hands him a very large check. He says, can I ask you what this is about? He says, I'll tell you. He said, I had just gone on my first trip to Israel. And I went to, to the hotel, to the wall, and I saw this guy there praying like I'd never seen anybody pray before. He was wearing like, you know, this big kind of flying saucer hat, and he had the, the things, and he was praying and praying and praying, and I just couldn't stop watching him. And as I was flying back, I couldn't get him out of my head. And I started to think, I wonder if that guy would end up in our town in Texas, is there a synagogue where he would pray? Where would, where would he go? I had no idea. The only way I could think of to find out is I know that there was a store on one of the streets that said, like, kosher meat. 
So I went in there, and I told the owner, I said, you know, I was in Israel, I saw one of these guys praying, praying, praying. If he would come here, where would he want to pray? He said, probably in Rabbi So-and-so's shul. So I decided I'm going to support your shul. And he went on to be a part of that shul and to support that shul for a long time. But the rabbi punchline was, he said, at some point, that Yerushalmi guy is going to head up to the next world. And they're going to be going through the things he accomplished in life. And they're going to announce, and look at that beautiful synagogue he helped build in, you know, Houston or something. And he'll ask the malachim, he's Houston. <laughs> what are they talking about? Okay, but he did it by being him. So these are, these are the things that we see and find that a person has. Now, let's take a look at the Swasemis continues on to what seems to be an entirely different topic, but it's not divided up with another title, which means that they're connected. So in the few minutes we have left, I want to try to connect them. He says like this. He says that he experienced what's called kvitzas ha'aretz. Sometimes it's called kvitzas ha'derech. Right, that when he remembered that he may have passed the place that his forefathers davened, so immediately, he was there. And he says, this is an aspect of Eretz Yisrael, right, that it's called in the Novi Yechezkel, Eretz HaTzvi, it's like a deer, the hide of a deer, Chazal says, Rav it stretches and shrinks, can stretch and contract. So he says, therefore, nowadays, it's hard to see the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael revealed. Now he says, let's think about when Yaakov Avinu was there. If we were watching from like the Google satellite and we were watching Yaakov Avinu there sleeping, right, by Harabayis, what would we see? We would see dirt, we would see rocks, we would maybe see some people grazing goats. We would see nothing. He said the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael had never yet been revealed externally. Okay, nonetheless, right, he says, Yaakov Avinu was able to connect with it. And how did he do it? First of all, it says, Ga'aguim. He wanted to connect to Eretz Yisrael. He wanted to connect to the Kedusha. He loved it. That's why it says that he took the stones of Eretz Yisrael and he surrounded his head with them. Okay, this is expressing what we find the Pasuk in Tilim, Kiratsu avodecha esavoneho. Right, that your children, your servants, love the stones of Eretz Yisrael. And as it says in the Gemara, in the end of Ksuvos, that Tzadikim, when they would arrive in Eretz Yisrael, they would kiss the stones of Akko. Right, that was the port city where the ships would come. Right, so I'll just tell you a, a very important story to remember. They say that when the Briskorov came to Eretz Yisrael, so he came in, and somebody asked him, why didn't the Rov kiss the stones? He says, because it's brought down that that is something that the great Chachamim would do. Right? And he didn't consider himself to be that type of great Chacham. It's a very instructive story because we tend to see a story that says, great Chachamim do this, so I say, oh, I should do this. He was saying, no, there's certain things are certain people. Okay, so Yaakov Avinu's love for Yisrael, the difficulty he felt separating from it, enabled him to discover the aspect of the Beis Migdosh even though it was still hidden. It had never been yet revealed. But he said, He knew what this was, this place. That's what it means, that he was able to reach the inner truth of the land before it was ever revealed. 
Okay, so now we can see how this parallels the first part. Yaakov Avinu in the first part was Hitminatsmu, he went deep and he looked beyond the outside of current events and he realized that everything happening here is Hashem doing these things to move me from point A to point B. Here he looked at a land that seemed to be like a land of any other and he was able to go deep and to realize what it was and to connect to the Beis Amigdosh that was there in potential even at that time. And he was able to do this with these two words. This is not what it seems. You see sand and rocks. I see the house of Hashem. I see the gate to the heaven. Okay, Even though it hasn't been there yet, but things are not the way they seem on the outside. And that's the theme that unifies these different pieces of the Sasemis. We have to look at the events in our lives and say, right? stop looking at you know, this one or that one. And, and even you know, when people get caught up in politics and political campaigns and things like this, you have to realize, it says, The more powerful a person is, the more of a puppet he is in the hands of Hashem because he affects more people. And we should never feel, this candidate will save us, that one will save us. If this happens, any of them can go in any particular way. We have to realize that Hashem is behind all of them. Of course, you have to do the ishtadlis to try and choose the one that's best for the things that are important to you. But to realize that there's something behind it. There's a be'er to everything in the Sheva. And the other thing that's there is to look at every Jew that way as well. Right? We know that every Jew is compared to having a Beis Amikdosh inside of them. There's this Mishkan inside. And sometimes when a person looks at a Jew and that Jew seems so far and so disconnected, it's not like what you see on the outside. Every Jew has a gateway to the heavens. Every Jew has that inside of themselves. And that's the concept of tshuva, simply bringing that out and connecting it, but it's always there. So this is what he taught us here, and this is the idea of helping that shlichus in everything in life. So much of our lives are spent frustrated, feeling that we're not where we are, we're not doing what we wanted to do, we're not in the place we wanted to be. All these things a person has to learn to realize. We're not fatalistic. We're not saying, oh, Hashem gave me strep throat, so I guess I'm supposed to have strep throat. No, Hashem gave you strep throat because He wants you to go to the doctor and get tested and get a prescription and take care of yourself, etc. Why does He want me to go to the doctor? I don't know. Maybe you're supposed to meet somebody in the waiting room. Maybe you know, you're supposed to have that interaction with the doctor. There are endless reasons, and it's not our job to figure out, but to realize that they're there behind everything big or small that happens in our lives. To learn to look at the world through those eyeglasses of Einze. But in order to do that, it takes time. You have to look below the surface. You have to dig there and to dig deep. We live in a very external world. Right? They say the descendants of Esau, which turned into Rome. So there's a Gemara that says, if it were not for kol hamona shel Romi, if it weren't for the sound of the multitudes of Rome, which Rashi says, Rome in its exaltation, in its success, and its glory, we would hear the sun singing Hashamayim Shamayim Lashem. There's music going on, but there's a lot of interference. Right? A person who is able to cut through what's outside of it, the Einze, is able to hear and sense that music right, and be able to see what's there.
This also leads us into Hanukkah. Hanukkah is also an Einze. The idea of the Pach Shemen and the limitations that we see physically on a small flask of oil, we have to realize Einze, right? There's something behind all of that that created the very nature of that item, and that nature can change, right? All of those things are there. So this is how Yaakov Avinu teaches us this lesson of constant shlichus, and we just have to walk in, walk in his footsteps. Okay, everybody have a wonderful week. Welcome to you.